Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Right, well, welcome back, Limers, you old Limeys, you. How the hell are you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm sat here in Studio Limehouse. And we have a cracking conversation for you this evening, this morning, dusk, I don't know, whatever. And, yeah, I, I mean, I mean that. Natasha Devons stopped by and put some amazing amazing stuff out there you know she's a, she's one of the most incredible mental health campaigners in this country frankly and and was treated enormously badly and unprofessionally by the David Cameron government at the time and uh, she she talks about that and also talks about uh, kids in school education uh, obviously mental health is at the forefront of all of that and you know I, I talk openly about like my sort of education I don't know where that comes from and, and also I get a little bit partridgey as well so it's kind of a funny it's a good chat as well it's, it's, it's a good conversation it's it's along it's along those lines it's it, yeah it's it's fun I think you'll really really enjoy it as as always on the, on the Limehouse podcast you always enjoy don't you right you know but anyway enough of my rambling Hit us up on on, uh, on 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 Twitter if you fancy. It's at Limehouse Pod. Get in touch. Do do all that normal shtick that you that you do online. It's, it's good to hear from you. And and also obviously the LimehousePodcast.com where you can read about some of uh, some, some bits and pieces. And we are on Medium as well. I'm now doing a a, a blog there. So Medium.com. It's uh it's quite cool. It's under the Limehouse podcast, so I've started doing a little bit more writing. So that's a good good way of keeping in, in touch with us and up to date with with my little rambling thoughts. Because let's face it, one minute I'm a gardener, the next I'm going to Westminster or whatever, and it's kind of weird. And I I think I've just started to talk about it really because it is odd, but in in a good great way, not as in like odd and getting naked and you know covering myself in honey and running around. Sydenham High Street in the summer trying to attract bees. Bees. Anyway. Yeah, enjoy the chat. I know you will. Stay in touch and hopefully I will I'll see you at the end of the interview. Alright guys, yep. Bye. Yeah, I'm recording. Okay, right, brilliant. I'm here with Natasha Devon. This is amazing. It's very, very exciting. Um I'm just gonna check my mic level. Hello, that's good, isn't it? Yes, that's marvellous. Right, okay, because I don't really want to sit with these on all evening. It would just look weird <laughs> and give you a full sense I actually know what I'm doing when I... <laughs> Which would be terrible. <laughs> yeah, 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 I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. But um, what I really wanted to do, before we get into, like, I don't know, anything deeper, was just, I don't know, your background. Mm. Like, um, before, when did you kind of, like, become politically active or just socially aware well I started going into schools and speaking about mental health uh, almost exactly 10 years ago wow and 
I was sublimely apolitical when I started doing that. I had not voted at that point in my life. The first time I voted was in the the 2010 uh, general election. But I quickly realised that there are some demographics in society which are disproportionately affected by mental health issues, um, that austerity plays its part, and that you can't have an interest in mental health without also having an interest in politics. Okay, yeah. So that's how it all began, really. Yeah, they're absolutely intertwined, aren't they? Yeah. I I actually find, personally, whenever I think, what am I most, like, passionate about? And I know, I suppose, I could probably use Iraq as a cornerstone, Mm. but... Education, like when I really think about it, I think about my own, and I start getting infuriated. Mm. There's a real trigger there, yeah. You know, um, so I mean, you're 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 my age. Aren't you like 35? I'm 36. I'm 36 as well. <laughs> Did you shave a year off to try and be yeah. flattering? Yeah, I'm 37 in August. Actually. Well played. I'm pretty excited about that. But um, but yeah, why why? Why kids? Why schools? Why why the the kind of the, the compassion? Where did that come from? A couple of reasons. I think first of all, um, the the methodology by which we teach mental health should be more like physical health. Mm-hmm. So the minute you're born, it's acknowledged you've got a body and therefore a physical health, and there are things that you need to know in order to maintain that. But with mental health, we tend to wait until things go wrong. Yeah. And to give you an example, exercise has been shown to be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as medication. But you can't tell a depressed person to go for a run. It's like asking them to go to Mars. Yeah. So there's little point in waiting until it gets to that stage. So I wanted to try and stage an, an early intervention and to make the mental health model more closely resemble the physical health. Secondly... Spending time with teenagers is my favourite thing. (laughs) Particularly sixth formers. They're my favourite. Because they are smart enough to understand how the world works, but they're open-minded enough to want it to change. Yeah. And if you get them then and you get them engaged, I feel like, you know, a small proportion, I'm not saying every single person leaves one of my classes ready to take on the world. Yeah. But I feel like I'm I'm recruiting these ambassadors to um, enact really kind of grassroots change. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about because I was te- uh, talking with um, Peter Tatchell mm. not so long ago, and he does he goes into schools and talks about uh, sex ed okay. and stuff. And I, I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, it was pretty barren, like what kind of information we were given from the outside world. We did get a few talks, and one of them was on drugs. Mm. But the, for me, it was quite interesting. I don't know whether I heard you talking about it or something that you wrote, but how people are given these opportunities to you know school talks but they're always the extreme mm. like the really extreme end of the spectrum there's nothing that just says to someone hey this is what mild anxiety is about this mm. is what this could lead to or whatever and this is how you can deal with it it's always about the end don't do drugs because you'll end up like this man or like i did and i was on crack and all this kind of like for 15 20 years which is obviously a scare straight tactic but do you think there should be more gentle gentle more often more do you know what I mean like more like it should be in the curriculum instead of you know alongside history and science and all those kind of things I think it probably should be in the curriculum but I would add a couple of provisos to that I would say um it has to be properly funded and resourced Mm. and you have to give teachers sufficient time and space 
the danger is if you put something on the curriculum it just becomes another thing on teachers to-do list and they are already phenomenally overworked but you're absolutely right it's that nuance we need to explore you know the, the options are not mentally ill or fine there are so many points that you can exist on a yeah. spectrum between those two yeah and you know it's really funny i was in um so i'm turning the heater down if you, in case you hear any crackling guys once again highly professional <laughs> um i was on a holiday with um about a year or so ago and a friend of ours just sort of opened up about uh his weird kind of ocd thought patterns and and how he used to beat himself up about um uh intrusive thoughts mm. you know concerning like i don't know paedophilia or just like wanting to hit someone when you're talking to them or pouring a pint over their head or whatever and just hearing someone talk about their weird ways it really helped a lot and I think if that were in schools a lot more, maybe that would help. But that's just me rambling away there. Well, I, I think you're right, because the worst case scenario is, say you're 14, and I pick that age because that's now the average onset age for mental health issues. Um, back in 1965, it was 45. Now it's 14. Yeah. So you're 14, and you're going through puberty, and you have no bar against which to measure your current state you've never experienced adulthood free of mental illness so the worst case scenario is that you're 14 you develop depression and you just think that that's what being an adult is yeah and that's what you're going to have to endure forever like imagine the desperation of that Uh, i mean god almighty i mean i I think i was 18 when i had my first panic attack and Mm. and it ruined it, it it left it leveled me i was absolutely a different i can tell you i was a different person woke up in the morning something happened and in my in my mind and I came down and I just couldn't function properly I spoke to my mum about it and alleviated it a lot Hmm. but I mean it makes me anxious to talk about it now yeah it's really heavy Hmm. really heavy and that shit doesn't leave you and that's an 18 year old right I can't imagine what a 14 12 year old but one of my questions to you is that when when What's the earliest the symptoms can happen with anxiety within within a child, and what can parents, what can and school teachers do about it? It's really difficult to pinpoint an exact earliest age. There were a lot of parents who were saying when the more rigorous testing regime was introduced yeah. in 2015 that it was inducing anxiety in their four-year-olds. Uh, so that's incredibly young, obviously. Yeah. Um, I first had a panic attack. And it's something that I write about in my book, actually, um, when I was 10. But because back then mental illness wasn't considered as an option, yeah. I was misdiagnosed with asthma. Is that They thought that was why I was having difficulty breathing. So I know from lived experience that you, you can have a panic attack yeah. at 10. Yeah. Um, and the answer is possibly even younger than that. I find that just, like, unbelievable. Like, mildly heartbreaking as well. I mean, just to think that, that you know, we're similar at the same age. I mean, God almighty. I mean, I went undiagnosed as dyslexic. I'm really turning into a me. This is, this is really about me today. <laughs> Jesus. No, it's, it it's kind of goes with the territory when you yeah. do this job. It's, it, and it's fine because we're at work. The, the worst thing is when I'm at a party and someone corners me and goes, I just want to tell you everything about my life yeah and as much as I like people and I like hearing their stories I'm kind of like I'm off duty yeah. you know but anyway please continue well no no I, I, I don't know I, I don't want to talk about myself as, as, as oh god it's so boring talking about yourself isn't it but um I did I did um 
want to touch a little bit more on the um, mental health issues that you've had yourself, because obviously you are able to relate completely to other people that suffer from it. But your you, eating disorder, you had bulimia. Mm. When when was that? That began just before I went to university. Yeah. And knowing what I now know, yeah. in retrospect, my eating disorder was a coping strategy for anxiety. Yeah. And when you speak to people who have a mental health journey to share, you'll usually find that there's this moment where the tectonic plate shifted. So things like bereavement, your parents breaking up, moving home, moving schools, being bullied, yeah. these can all be trigger points. And for me, it was, you know, I spent seven years in the same school a place where I felt loved, valued, appreciated. I loved school. I really loved school. Wow, <laughs> I know I'm unusual yeah. in that regard. And I was moving from the very small village in Essex where I grew up, uh, which is called Ugly. Yeah, I, I, I saw that <laughs> thing on YouTube. And I, was, yeah. I couldn't quite believe it. Was it a silent F in there or something? It's yeah. a silent E. Yeah. yeah. Pronounced <laughs> ugly. I'm an, I'm an ugly girl. So I, I, I moved from there to um, Aberystwyth where I went to university. So, yeah. you know, completely different and whilst everybody needs to do that and break away from their routines and restrictions and rules and everything that they've known back home, that, that's an important part of your evolution. Yeah. What it will also do is it will ratchet up your anxiety levels for anyone, I would Hell argue. Yeah. And mine were already pretty high. Mm. So that's what kick-started my, my eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and so what was life, life like at university then? I'm really sad. I'm now a fellow of University of Wales, Aberystwyth. So I go back there um, because I think if you're a fellow, you're expected to donate either your time or your money. And because I'm such a softie, I I do (laughs) so much work for free. I have no money. So so I donate my time and I I go back every year and I help them um, with their campus wellbeing strategies. And I also help them with this thing called Summer Uni, which is um, getting local sixth formers from um, Wales and um, giving them a kind of taste of uni life and things that they might not have been exposed to in, yeah. in their hometowns. Um, so I go back to Aberystwyth and I think this place is incredible and I missed all of it. I lived there for three years and my memories of it are so patchy and the ones that I do have yeah. are really um, sort of quite distressing. I, I can imagine. I mean, I, I, like I said, I don't like to talk about my anxiety too much because it does genuinely trigger stuff. Like, mm. in my mind, it really does. Like, I can't talk about um, drugs. I, had, I did MDMA once, and I spent, like, four weeks in hell afterwards on the come down. It was mm. absolutely pretty funny, really. Kind of, like, almost like something out of the peep show or something. But, um, I, I mean, so you were, like, what, 19? Eight, yeah, 18, yeah. yeah. And it... I, I mean, I'm just trying to picture picture you in that situation and a lot of other people. Because I know that the people that, you know, university is actually fucking hard for some people, mm. right? But what... Because your, your, your books, when did you start writing? When, when, when did that start? That sort of like that, hey man, i got to write stuff down. Did you blog for ages and then it evolved? Or? Well, I've always loved writing. English has always been my thing. In fact, when I was in primary school, I was Matilda. I got moved up with the big kids. <laughs> Only for English, though. I was really good at English, but rubbish at other things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I got moved out with the big kids because I was writing these sort of, you know, these really long stories. My mum still got some of them, actually. Yeah. And she tells really funny stories about how she used to say to me, look, can you stop 
writing and like in my teenagers can you go out and get drunk and snog boys or oh, bless some it, it, we were very much like Safi and, and Edina in Abfab that's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. my yeah come on, <laughs> yeah, come on. Stop, re- stop reading George Orwell and you, and, yeah. you grew up in Essex as well so, yeah, yeah I did just stereotype completely yeah. uh, subverted the culture and yeah. um uh, then when I was at university was actually some of the time when I did the least writing because I, I was very poorly. Um, but I got back into it uh, when I was I was working at a therapy practice um, that the person that owned the practice said that I could um, do my training in psychology and sit in on some of the uh, sessions mm. in return for working reception. Okay. Um, and being in reception in a therapy practice because it's like literally one person every two hours there's nothing to do so that's when I started blogging again Wi-Fi and, and yeah, yeah. And, and kind yeah. of entered that sphere so that's yeah. how it all started that sounded so partridge then <laughs> you were like talking and I just went Wi-Fi Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> wow, partridge That style. was very partridge. Uh, can I interrupt you then? Uh, what's the Wi-Fi signal like uh, at that therapy centre? Okay, well, we'll move on. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it's funny because I, I've started writing as well. Did it, did it take you um, a long time to find your voice as a writer? Because you're mm. very naturalist. Your, your writing is so, like, just you, you, you. I mean, and you ghostwritten as well. I have, yeah. So... God, you're pretty talented, man. <laughs> Thank you, know? you. That's that's really nice to hear. I, it did take me a while to find my voice because something that I've discovered about myself is that I am actually quite balanced. I sort of, I'm passionately balanced, <laughs> which is a really difficult position to maintain. Yeah. So I won't tend to dwell at either end of the spectrum of any argument because I don't think that that's where the truth lies. I'll, yeah. you know, instinctually agree with probably one side more than the other but I think oh no they've they've got a point as well and when I first started writing opinion pieces for the press that was not a a fashionable position to take so you would literally have people you know this was the time when sort of Katie Hopkins came to prominence and and the fashion was to have these really ferocious debates exploring questions which things like oh you know should you get a boob job for your man and and, and things like that and there was no room for a wider discussion about how our culture has commodified the body and the pressures on women and and all those kinds of things so um for a while I did that and and I was really frustrated was that for the times um, stuff. No, it no. was it was for a variety of people. I did I did a lot of stuff for the Telegraph and um, and and as well. I would the, not position you as a, a Telegraph writer at right? all. Isn't and, that funny? And isn't it? And and something that I discovered as well is that the headline that they put on something is very often all people read. So so I wrote this piece for the Telegraph back in 2013, which is still doing the rounds. And if I could delete it from the internet I would Um, but I was trying to make the point that the patriarchy is not synonymous with men yeah so it's during the time 2013 when um the no more page three campaign and um sort of grassroots feminism was having a moment yeah and as much as that was something to be celebrated I saw a lot of hatred directed at men for reasons that I I I didn't see that there was a reason (laughs) yeah so I was saying look patriarchal values are just as oppressive for men as they are for women so it's yeah. people versus the patriarchy not men versus women that okay. was the point i was trying to make yeah so the telegraph slapped this headline on it 
um, modern feminism has got it wrong about men. And I had all these terrifying alt-right types getting in touch with me saying, it's brilliant that you've taken down feminism. And I felt how I imagine Nietzsche must have felt you know, when Hitler completely misinterpreted <laughs> on a much smaller scale, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so that, so that kind Always of thing. It's good to get Nietzsche into every, every <laughs> conversation, I think, yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, so I, I do less of that now and try to write for publications that let me explore the, the shades of grey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously there, there's obviously a lot of, of there was a, a whole peak of drama in your life around your... Um, uh, being uh, brought into government, right? so <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you call it? Um, count, counseling, offering advice. Yes. The uh, mental health czar. Mm. Is that correct? Your the title there. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's, okay, yes. let's just run with that. Then. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> what? Um, who the hell came to you? Was it like a an email? Hey, fancy this? Or it was so bizarre. <laughs> In early 2015... Beginning and end. Oh, the beginning The beginning yeah. was as bizarre as the end. So, so yeah. in early 2015, I got a call from a SPAD at the Department for Education. Is that a relative of SPAM? <laughs> a, a special advisor uh, okay. at, at the Department for Education. And they okay. said, um, we want you to be a, a, our first ever government mental health champion. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, look, we as a government have recognised that we have a responsibility to help young people with their mental health. This is a huge widespread problem. But what we don't have is your on the ground experience. So we would like you to report back what you're seeing on the ground. And that will filter through. Ultimately, this is an opportunity to affect policy. And I did ask them if they got the wrong number, because, you know, I say famously, that's probably a bit up myself, but, you know, I did write that open letter to Michael Gove saying, look, by cutting sport, art, music, drama, PSHE from the curriculum, it's going to cause a crisis in young people's mental health. Um, And I've been very vocally critical of Michael Gove's education reform. So I thought it was very peculiar that they picked me. But then ultimately I thought it would be really churlish to to turn this down because if they wanted tokenism, they would have picked someone else. Mm, Yeah. So that's why I took the position. You don't turn that down. Like you've got to have... Everyone wants influence. And and, 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 and you, you come from a really great warm caring place it's not like you, know, you you're gonna walk turn that down and some other guy comes in and whatever and screws it up or what have you right um but then again it kind of went a little bit tits up when they just weren't listening to you is that right um there were a few things i, I think <laughs> first of all i said to them look you know my popularity amongst particularly teachers comes from I'm always authentic and I don't always get it right but I'm always coming from a place of of reflecting the situation as I see it Mm -hmm. Um, and I try really hard not to be influenced by um, anything other than that so I said you know the minute I stop being authentic any association with me that's beneficial to you is going to be lost because that's why people like me and so if you turn me into some sort of robot reading out government press releases on this morning yeah (laughs) you know I'm that's not going to work so I I said you know I want absolute I want to retain absolute creative control out of over my output yeah but it didn't quite work like that um that the first 
inkling that I got that everything was not rosy was um, I attended a conference at Cambridge University and it was organised by a bereaved father who has has lost his son to suicide and he had organised it, I believe, with the the best possible intentions. Mm. My criticism wasn't of him at all. My criticism was of some of the people that spoke at that conference who... um, particularly the the then um, Minister for Social Care, Alistair Burt, mm-hmm. who I'm reliably informed had one speech that he was just touring all these events, giving the same speech. And um, some of the stuff that he was saying was, was misleading and patronising and just wrong. Mm-hmm. And I stood up and challenged him in that conference. And that didn't go down well with them but it didn't but you didn't have like an intention of doing that there it just happened on the spot am I right I was incensed because he'd he'd said all these things um and then that I didn't agree with and then said um and it's a symbol of our commitment to the issue of young people's mental health that we are working with Natasha Devon and that suggested that I endorsed everything that he'd said um, and I, I distinctly remember, actually, I start, my legs started jiggling and my friend that was sat next to me, who also works in mental health, was saying to me, you're in flight or fight mode. Yeah. Um, you've got to calm down because I was so angry. Mm. So I, you know, I did challenge him um, and I was angry when I did it. And in some ways, I feel a little bit sorry for him because he wasn't expecting it. But I couldn't have not said it. Oh, God, no. I mean, like, I... I it's amazing that you did. Um, I mean, my sister-in-law adores you, and one <laughs> of the reasons it is because of the way you stood up for the cause. And um, I, I, I mean, I look at it and from a neutral perspective or a balanced perspective, <laughs> and I kind of go, "Shit, man, this is kind of always going to happen, wasn't it?" I mean, you, you're a very, you know, open person, and definitely of a new approach, and to fit into politics. The dark channels of Westminster. Oh my God! You know, I had a lovely chat with a guy called Jonathan Bartley, the co-leader of the um, Green Party, and he was the same. You know, he was involved in Westminster and totally did a U-turn. But and I can see that. Mm. What did you learn from from that experience? And and I, I guess where did it did it take that? Did it take anything forward? I learned very quickly that what the government is trying to do is trying to create the illusion of action without actually committing any anything <laughs> um, so for example um, when they say oh we've committed this many extra mental health nurses that's only a third of what they cut <laughs> yeah. um, when they say we're committed to reducing stigma that's not their job that's the job of charities they're supposed to be sorting out children and adolescent mental health services and, and yeah. you know funding and the NHS um, so they are allying themselves with campaigners and charities to try and make it look as though they care whilst at the same time brutally slashing the, the services that people need. So I, I made that distinction in my head quite early on. But I also realised that there, that as politics stands at the moment, I am more happy on the periphery, that I, d- I didn't belong there. 
Um, and it made me realize that in order to climb that ladder, you have to sacrifice more and more and more of yourself. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, probably the, the exception to that, somebody who's always remained very principled would be Jeremy Corbyn, mm-hmm. who's a kind of anomaly. But then the, the criticism that's always made of him is, um, well, he's, he's not a leader. Um, and, and so you go, well, if, if people aren't going to perceive people who are... Um, who are taking a moral standpoint and doing everything from uh, the point of view of what they think is right as a leader, then I don't want any part of that. Right, yeah. You mean like, yeah, you, you've got to, at some point, you've just got to stand by your your morals. You've got to just, like, you know, that rod that you've made for your back, that is there for a reason yeah. in some cases. Yeah. I, just, I don't know. I just think, like, did, did you ever get a chance to, like, look Cameron in the eye, like David Cameron, and go, look, man, come on. What the fuck? I did not. Grab his big shiny forehead and... (laughs) But you know what? I I never thought I would say this, but given what's happened since, I I, I kind of wish he was back. Yeah, coalition years. I mean, it wasn't too bad, really. Oh, I've just pissed a load of people off there. But Uh, you know what? I thought that since we've not had a coalition, it would become more obvious to people how much the Liberal Democrats were doing to to kind of hold the Conservatives back. Yeah. Um, and in particular, Nick Clegg, you know, did you see as well the way that he was used as Deputy Prime Minister as in every time there was some bad news, he <laughs> yeah. was wheeled out to deliver that bad news. So people started to associate him with bad news. And of course, the student debt thing is, is the thing, is his legacy. Mm. But I imagine that that was... I'm not excusing that at all, hmm. but I imagine that that was used as a bargaining chip um, to stop them from making some decisions elsewhere. Um, and I feel so sorry for the Liberal Democrats with for yeah. making that deal with the devil and uh, yeah. that Faustian pact, and you know, look yeah. where they've ended up. Oh, I know, I know. We've discussed it at length on this show, but I mean, what? How do you feel about? Yeah, you touched on there, David Cameron there, and mm. the, head, the heady days. Um, do you want some of your tea? Because I'm like Thanks. making you talk and talk and talk. <laughs> That's fine. Um, how, how do you, how do you feel, or at least where are we headed under this current current government? Uh, uh, bearing in mind that Brexit is kind of shitting over everything and and putting everything to the back of the queue. Mm. How, do you do you think Theresa May's serious about mental health? Um. It's such a strange period in history. <laughs> if you know, in ten years' time, if we're all still alive, then yeah. uh, and Trump hasn't pushed his very big nuclear button, but he's just made easier to press as well. <sighs> yeah. um, if a child says to me, you know, twenty eighteen, what was that all about? I genuinely don't know how I will answer them. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I think what's going on is that. Uh, Theresa May is holding in, holding in there for one of two reasons, either because she thinks that she is better than any of the alternatives, which is arguably true, arguably, or because she's being forced to because David Cameron's gamble with Brexit didn't pay off. Yeah. Theresa May is see, seen as being shambolic. She can't control her own party. And if a third Conservative leader comes in and then has to take the flack for Brexit, mm. that will be the end of the Conservative Party because it will start to be the party, not the person yeah. that, that gets blamed. 
so I think that every, she, she's just trying to hold on yeah. <laughs> at the moment. And you're right in that everything does kind of seem to have got put on the, the back burner in those regards. I, I, for me, the Jeremy Hunt is an inexplicable thing. <laughs> Phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> well done for not swearing. <laughs> it was on the tip of your tongue, I could see it. Yeah, yeah, I just... You know, when you see him being given a piece of information that you think the Secretary for Health should really know that. Mm. And and he'll be like, wow, you've just really educated me on the, on the topic of mental health. That's terrifying. Yeah. He's so out of touch. With... Oh, but, but I mean, I, th- I suppose that's what I was trying to get out earlier when I said mm. that, oh, you know, someone like yourself comes in and, you know, you're so far detached from politics and you've just got a cool new way of looking at things. Someone like you comes in and talks, they just don't get it. Like, <laughs> are you telling me that Jeremy Hunt's going to... I sat down and read, read anything that isn't like, of, of any and I'm sure he's got compassion I'm sure he's in a I, fundamentally I cannot believe that he's a complete arsehole through and through <laughs> but I just think like you said people change with in politics they they, they lose more and more of themselves mm. and then by the time they've got to like a, a really decent ministerial position they've lost so much themselves they don't know what the fuck to do so they get people like you in and they just Treat them like shit. Yeah. And there, there are some things that were said to me um, within the Department for Education that really showed that. And, you know, when something goes through the prism of... And this is not me saying that, you know, politicians from other parties are perfect. But when something goes through the prism of a Tory mind, the way it emerges is terrifying. So <laughs> I, yeah, sorry, um, I, I, I remember we did this, um, this sort of focus group with some young people who had lived experience of mental health mm. and it was great that that's my favorite thing to talk to the people who are actually going through it and afterwards one of the ministers asked me how I felt it went and I said um it, they were really interesting to talk to you what I would like to do now is have a similar discussion with young people who have no lived experience of, of mental illness yeah. so that they uh, so that we can see how we could convey a message about mental health to them um, because they don't have the same kind of depth of knowledge that's what I said that went into his Tory mind and came out as yes I know what you mean Natasha because people with mental illnesses do tend to make it all about themselves don't they he said that to you and I'm like you're gonna tell people that's what I said and I didn't I promise that's not what I said but his interpretation of it was mind-boggling god that's 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 pretty amazing. Maybe he is an asshole after all. <laughs> that Jeremy Hunt didn't say that. It was oh, a different. Sorry. It was a different minister. It was a different minister. Yeah, okay, who God. shall remain nameless, like God. Voldemort. But I mean, it is like we're. I don't know. I, it's tough because when I was a child, I wasn't like <clears throat> necessarily aware of all the, the the stuff that was going on necessarily subconsciously within myself. Mm. And maybe it, yeah, it did take a long time to get out, but. There was never any... I mean, what it was for me, education anyway, is get them in, fucking, what, 9am or whatever, get them out at 3, 4 o'clock, and if no one beats anyone up and no one shits their pants, then we've done a good job, off you go. Yeah. There's literally no... I don't know whether I'm talking out of turn here, but at least from my educational perspective, I didn't really get a feeling that I was actually being looked after long term mm. and I know we're rambling over the place here but I don't do you do you feel there needs to be more long term strategy for, for people like we like governments need to go right well not governments parties whoever people with the power need to sort of say 
well, we're going to look after people from zero to like 75, 80. Yeah. So that they've got the tools. I, th- I definitely think we need to start seeing people as people as opposed to cobs, cogs in a capitalist machine. Yeah. That definitely needs to happen. And I mean, fundamentally, the education system at its heart hasn't really changed for a hundred years. Mm. You know, the children still sit in rows. That was originally to prepare them for factory work. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's still the, the same kind of linear curriculum being taught in, in the same ways. And so despite all these kind of endless directives that have driven teachers to distraction, you've still got these sort of same core principles that run through it. And And when I put that to one of Cameron's advisors... He said, well, yes, of course it it hasn't changed because it works. And what he meant was it worked for me. And that's essentially the problem is that by definition, the people who benefit most from things being as they are are the people who then influence the the policy that everybody has to live by. Yeah, exactly. So I think the education system needs to be completely redesigned from scratch. But not not under a Tory government, certainly Mm -hmm. not under... I mean, the, the, I suppose the last sort of reasonable sea changes we had was under uh, New Labour, under uh, Tony Blair, yeah, um, and what have you. And then also, you know, like pupil premium or, or um, not pupil premium, uh, free school, free school meals. It's like uh, kids. Oh, we've found out that kids actually work better when they've got a full yeah stomach. Who would have thought? Mm. You know, it's like for fuck's sake, come on, you know. Yeah, but anyway, I, I did want to get your opinion or sorry your um your thoughts on Weinstein because whenever I've mm. chatted to anyone uh you know I don't know from Cleggy Poos to I don't know whoever Ken Clark Cleggy Poos Cleggy this... Poos yeah this is what we're calling him is it Cleggy Poos okay Cleggy Poos <laughs> that's the original song uh yeah I'm gonna record that and uh that I always talk about it kind of like um how it affects the the main uh, industries but have you ever had? Have you sensed any trickle down effect into schools and how that that stuff's going? And also, I did want to talk about um, social media and yeah. how it's affecting kids. It's a really tricky one because the the Harvey Weinstein thing um, it, it kick started something, but it did it so unexpectedly and ferociously that I don't think that thing knows what it is yet. Yeah. So lots of things were kind of lumped in together. Yeah. Um, that and and actually, a friend of mine. I have a fantastic friend. She she writes for the New Yorker, and she has the most intellectual kind of snarky take on everything. I love taking her to award ceremonies because she just sits there and takes the piss and makes it hilarious. <laughs> and when I talked to her about Me Too, which I had just taken at face value and thought, isn't this phenomenal that people are coming out and supporting each other? She went right. So she's like, you've you've got a mental illness. Do you like it when you say to people, I'm, I'm really anxious today, I'm finding it difficult to function? And they go, oh yeah, me too. Yeah. And I went, no. <laughs> she said, it's diminishing the experiences of those women for everybody to go, me too. And yeah. you've got this whole spectrum of behaviour right from um, sort of qu- quite mild and in inverted commas sexual harassment right up to rape, which have all been lumped in. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that they're not related to one another, but looking at it from the perspective of a teenage boy... A lot of the the teenage boys I speak to see the rhetoric as being really accusatory. And you have these fantastic campaigners who are going in trying to talk to them about sexism 
And I'm sure that this is not how they say it, but what they hear is, you're a potential rapist. And that puts them on the defensive or it scares them. So something that has to be done, and I, and I do some work with something called the Coalition for Men and Boys, which people always laugh. <laughs> so they say, do we need that? But they look into two things. First of all, why working class white boys underperform in the education system. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, why a man kills himself in the UK every two hours. And that those are the problems that they're dedicated to solving. And I have lots of conversations with them and they bring a, um, a very interesting perspective to the feminist debate about how we can make discussions around consent and sexism inclusive. Mm. Because if you don't engage heterosexual men, there isn't much Th- point. What's the fucking point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a really interesting point. I'm glad I brought that um, subject up because sometimes I, I forget to bring stuff up. But I mean, that's, that's a really... Uh, sorry, the... Um, what's that the organization coalition for men and boys yeah that's that's it is true you know you have to open up because you do get i I suppose yeah you you tread that path in 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 like five degrees off Mm. in 10 years time we've got a serious problem if we haven't got a decent dialogue you know two-way conversation about stuff i just but also in terms of social media Mm. and and instagram um I know the trend now is for kids to look very sullen when they're doing selfies with, mm. with, one, with one another. That's obviously almost laughable, but still quite sad. Um, then there's obviously, you know, um, sending pictures of each other in, in the buff and what have you. How's that? I mean, I'm so I'm 36. I feel so fucking removed from that. I mm. feel so... Like, school to me, that... Oh, my God, we didn't have mobile phones at school. Of course we didn't. That, that goes without saying... So for me, it's really, uh, you know, I like to think I'm a kind of like a bit of a lefty. Well, I'm a lot of a lefty. <laughs> but, um, or at least, how how do we combat that? And how, what are the things you're hearing? Like, what do we need to know? Parents out there. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, first of all, the challenge is not trying to get children off of social media altogether it's a bit like what you were saying with drugs if you take a zero tolerance policy on anything it's not an effective message this is the world that they inhabit it's their reality they don't have a frame of reference they were born into a world of smartphones and instant internet access so what's a more effective approach i think is to help them navigate this world and Um, critical thinking skills for example what's the difference between entertainment and advertising what's the agenda here do I agree with this but is that that's not being done in schools it's part of what I do it's part of what you do yeah so you'll so they'll see maybe they'll get one talk a year yes although I do um give follow-up activities so that they can keep that rolling and keep practicing that um and The reason that I relate to the social media thing is there was a study that came out last week out of the University of Bath. Um, Dr. Thomas Curran was the the lead researcher on it. And it showed that there's been a 30% rise in perfectionism. And most people, when they hear perfectionist, they think of it as a broadly positive thing. They think, oh, you know, it's somebody who's really dedicated and they always give their best. But actually, perfectionism can become an illness. And it's, I'm a classic perfectionist. I have to have therapy still because to give you an example um i got an email a couple of weeks ago saying i was at this conference there were um 200 people at the conference and they said 95 percent of the delegates rated you as the best speaker of the day 
And because I'm a perfectionist, I went, oh God, 10 people didn't like it. I wonder why, what did I do wrong? That's what it's like in my brain. And I have to have strategies to combat that. One of the the symptoms of perfectionism is not partaking in activities that you're not 100% sure you'll be good at. So immeasurable, I would say, are all the things that perfectionists haven't done. Even though they might be fun or they might be life enhancing or creative in some way because they can't be absolutely assured that they will be great at it and and perform their best. So put that in the context of social media, everything we do, every failure, every bad fashion mistake, every misguided thing we say creates an indelible digital footprint. So you have this fear of not appearing at all times perfect and that i think is what's fed this this huge rise in in perfectionism yeah and i don't think now i should preface this by saying i am no fan of toby young that and that's putting it mildly he can get in the sea but (laughs) get in the sea he can get in the sea right (laughs) but i'm not a fan of this current trend for digging up tweets from yeah. 10 years ago or articles Guido, that people... Guido Falk style. Yeah. yeah, because it doesn't give you any breathing space to change your mind. And there's no point in having a mind if you don't change it. You know, people evolve. So yeah. we should be a little bit kinder to each other, I think, and allowing each other to um, make mistakes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> Some of the bitches I got on the old Facebook there. Pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty tasty. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, no, fair play. I mean, I just, I, I, um, I, uh, I don't know. I think about being, maybe being a dad one day, and I, mm. I think about how that, how that will, how how will you go even go about talking to a child about um, the the shit they see on their mobile phones. You know, it's bit, what you touched on there about advertising and 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 you know the women in these per- perfect bodies and mm. there's only so much a child can take before they start going, why haven't I got a perfect body? Yeah. And there is a reason, I think, that girls report much higher levels of dissatisfaction when they engage in social media platforms than boys, generally speaking. And that's because um, if you look into gendered psychology, people who fall at the feminine end of the gender spectrum, it's not necessarily all women, but just Mm. feminine people, have um, a body image shame trigger. And so when, when you go online, that's constantly being pushed, both through the images that you see and also the advertising messages. You know, you're not good enough, you need to consume in order to, uh, in order to fix this. Yeah. Um, and that's why beauty standards have become much narrower and yeah. more prescriptive over time, because they have to keep inventing new things for us to be worried about and to apologise for to keep us spending. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying, man. Yeah. Like, I, God... It's interesting to have this conversation with you because it has brought up a lot of my my childhood, my past, and stuff. But where where are you um where are you going with this new book? Because I know you've kind of uh, finished that now. The new, yeah, the new blueprint or something was done. Or I've got the notes back from the copy editor. Okay, um, yeah. Hopefully, they'll never be made public, like with Milo Yiannopoulos's book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know what that means, but okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know Milo? Do you know Milo? Oh, what a lovely place your brain must be. Don't Google him. Um, it just, uh, he, he was the, he used to be um, an editor at Breitbart. Oh, shit. Um, and oh, made a name for himself by just saying hugely divisive. Like, just think um, sort of Katie Hopkins to the power of 
hundred. That's impossible. And uh, was famously banned from Twitter, but for saying misogynistic and, and racist things. Um, and he wrote a book um, which was ultimately cancelled. And he tried to sue the publisher, and they so they made his uh, copy edits public yeah. uh, my favorite one of which was you're going to have to come up it's some, i'm paraphrasing but it was yeah, something yeah. along the lines of you're going to have to come up with a more sophisticated argument against feminism than they're all fat and single and have cats <laughs> which i thought was great yeah um oh. yeah <laughs> yeah what? i know i disappear i really dis- <laughs> disappear down the wormhole of like i just don't it's so fucking stupid and hate, hateful and spiteful i just Sorry, I don't get it. Like, I know. You know, well, I'm from a different generation, maybe. But um, no, sorry, so your new book, what's yes, it going to be about? My book. What's, what is it about? <laughs> it's called um, A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental. Oh, um, I very deliberately called it that because I'm trying to reclaim the word mental yeah. and say, look, I'm mental, you're mental because you've got brain. Yeah. In just the same way as we're physical beings, we're also mental beings. And it's a book for everyone with a brain. Mm-hmm. which is everyone, <laughs> who falls at whatever point in, in the kind of mental health spectrum. Yeah. And it's, for, I think the, the main thrust of it is I want to give people some clarity because over the past couple of years, this huge global mental health conversation has been ignited and that's fantastic. But we're still talking at cross purposes a lot of the time because people aren't quite sure what that word means or what yeah. that condition is or yeah. um, whether they should be worried or you know, yada yada. So um, it's an A to Z. And not only have I explored, you know, A is anxiety, that's probably quite obvious, but I've also explored issues which are related to mental health. So, for example, Q is queer, looking at LGBT plus specific issues. There's a whole avenue there of different different things, yeah. And it's out on May the 31st. Okay, cool. (laughs) That's really exciting. Definitely. And just, I mean, are there any books that people should read? yours and also other people that mm. you would you'd recommend oh loads um okay uh, so there's a really great book called crazy like us yeah. and it's by ethan waters which is w-a-t-t-e-r-s and he looks at the way that america has exported not only its definitions of mental illness but also its cures in inverted commas for yeah. mental illness to the furthest reaches of the globe wow. so he looks at how mental illness was discussed and understood in that culture prior to America essentially invading it with its sort of DSMV. So that's that's a really interesting book. Um, I also recommend um, a book called uh, How to Disappear Completely by Kelsey Osgood. Um, I actually, I reviewed that book for The Independent and when it landed on my desk, I thought I was going to hate it because I thought it was going to be a misery memoir, which the world does not need more of. (laughs) But in fact... Kelsey is one of the most talented writers I know. It is a a sort of essay, a very beautifully written extended essay on all the problems with the American healthcare system. Oh, okay, yeah. But could just as easily be applied to the the, the UK, um, but through the prism of her own experiences of being um, hospitalised with anorexia. Um, and then the final one that I would recommend is called We Are All Mad Here, yeah. uh, and that's by Claire Easton. Um, who has social anxiety and Claire is brilliant she's a friend of mine and she's just really funny and northern which everyone should be if they can try Um, (laughs) you know I know I'm not northern but I try not to beat myself up about it Um, but but she uh, is really the the way that she writes is just very um, 
easy to understand and, and engage with and, and, it, and it's called a no-nonsense guide to, to living with social anxiety yeah. and that's, that's truly the best description. Brilliant. Okay, well, I, I guess um, you, you can say goodbye to the listeners if you like. Bye, yeah. listener. Unless, of course, you've got something more you want to talk about, but there's always something more, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. You know, and... I could talk all day, but I won't. Yeah, I'll yeah. shut up now. It's I'm cool. going to drink my tea. Okay, thank you very much. High five. Thank you. Cool. Right. Well, welcome back to the show. That that. Well, so. Right. Well, welcome back, guys. I hope you really enjoyed that. I. I fucking loved it. It was absolutely fantastic. Natasha is such a presence. She's got such a, you know, a, a real warmth about her, real grace and power, you know, really knows where you, she knows exactly where she's coming from. It's a, it's fantastic. You know, she's not, she's got, she's got a really cool agenda and I, I admire her so much, all the amazing hard work she does and, and her, man, I can't wait for her new book. Sign me up, man. I'm getting that. I'm buying that. Um, but yeah, anyway, you've already probably, you know, tuned, tuned off by now because that's the way of the world with, with podcasts these days. But um, just to let you know what's coming up, what the fuck is coming up, Limers? Um, uh, yeah, we've got Natalie Bennett coming up down the road in a few weeks at the end of this month. That's January. Can you believe it? Goodness me. In fact, it got just really quickly, anniversary of David Bowie today, two years ago. Jeez Louise, heavy stuff. Um... Yeah, and who, who, yeah, and, we, and we've got um, Marie Louise Irvine. So we're going to be talking. Uh, she's obviously an NHS campaigner. We're going to be talking long and hard about that in a panel discussion with uh, Amna Ahmed, myself, and uh, Marie Louise. So it's going to be really cool, and we're really excited. So get those questions into us. It's really important. We want to kind of make this podcast more interactive with you guys. You know, we've got some amazing people out there. You know, and uh, Steve Little, hello, Grant Landon, hello. You're lovely people. It's good to it's good to shout out your names because you're so um, you're so dedicated. You lovely limers, you. All right. Well, look look after yourselves and uh, look after yourselves, and I will see you. I don't know next week. Yeah, and I, I you know the sun has been away, and I do bitch about this a lot, but it came out today on on a on a journey back from Cambridge University, and Jesus Christ, it was amazing seeing the sun come out. Oh my God. Anyway. Breathe. See you later.